Sunday, June 26, 2016. This is episode 164 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you tonight? Good, sir. I'm doing well. I'm doing well, though uh, retirement appears to be a few more years away, it's given true. my 401k. <laughs> Thank you, Brexit. Well, you know, it will come. Look, just don't panic. Just it's a good buying opportunity. I've I've already sold everything at the bottom. <laughs> I've liquidated everything for uh, pennies any... on the dollar, and I have buried it in my backyard. Okay. Well. There you go. When's the next time you're going to be out of town? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so. It is. It is quite quite striking. Uh, you know, we were we were talking before the show how wrong all the predictions were on that so yeah. i don't know i don't know i i uh there's a whole bunch of politics around that that i don't fully understand and we don't talk politics on the show but obviously it's a big deal and it, it may actually have a lot of impacts on things like data sharing laws and privacy laws and all sorts of stuff but i <laughs> what's funny is we we're having a discussion at work well, what does this mean for x y and z and and the answer is we have no idea yet there's a whole bunch of stuff we still even we don't even know it's going to take months and months and months probably to figure all this out and possibly even years it sounds like yeah but you know what really surprises me is that everybody seemed to to you know the stock market bookies everybody kind of got it wrong even though nostradamus predicted this how many hundreds of years ago that's true it's true in his eighth book, as I recall. Yeah. Um, and and I think the follow-up prediction was you may grow your hair back. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know about that one. <laughs> Oddly enough, though, if depending on how you translate it, it may not grow back on your head. No, that That's, I can uh, believe. So. so. Anyway, the uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. So. Getting into some stories we have for uh, tonight. The first one comes from the Errata Sec blog, and the title was Ethereum, the DAO hack simplified. So Written by a, an acquaintance. I don't know if he would consider us a friend. We consider him a friend. I don't know if he considers us a friend of the show, Robert Graham. More, more of like an annoyance, probably. Us to him or him to us? Uh, us to him. Yeah, that's fair. Carry on. <laughs> so. he, he doesn't listen to the show anyway, so. <laughs> So uh, anyway, um, for those who are in the know, uh, Ethereum is a uh, cryptocurrency, much like Bitcoin. Uh, as Robert describes in his blog post here, you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of different crypto coins, uh, cryptocurrencies out there. A lot of them really don't have any significant differentiation between uh, Bitcoin uh, and Ethereum is one of the few exceptions to that rule, and they actually added this concept of smart contracts. And the idea is that you can program in logic. So you, they call them smart contracts. So you can, you can kind of effectively impart logic into 
these currency transactions. And so basically, the the example Rob gives, which I thought was just a, a great way to explain it, is you know if you if you let's say you are uh, hosting a conference and you need to sell a hundred tickets, right? And you're not, but you can't have the um, you can't have the conference if you don't sell a hundred tickets. And if you know if 98 people buy tickets, uh, you know up at the deadline, all those 98 people need to be refunded their entire ticket price. And so you can codify that logic into the transaction. And you can probably see where this is going. <laughs> so, so that that actually that smart contract concept requires the ability, again, to um, effectively put in code, right? And uh, and not, not just put in code, but for random sellers and buyers to insert their own code, right? Into into this, <laughs> right? And, and now, so now, before we go any further. Does this sound like a good idea in principle to allow random people to insert code, in essence, to your application? Um, I, I'm I'm thinking, I'm thinking that it has been a really bad idea for a long time, or it's been been well known as a bad idea for a long time that you should not accept, uh, you know, user input like that, especially code from uh, the user. Now. To be fair, let me set the stage very carefully. My understanding of blockchains and how they work is weak. So I'm sure that there are folks who understand this much better than I do who can justify why this is a good idea. But at the surface level, when I read about the fact that as you go to sell something or, or evoke a transaction in this blockchain you can essence use their javascript like language to not only code the contract but insert code for the transaction itself beyond just where to send the transaction results and that just seems fraught with peril yeah so so the uh, some attacker i mean just to cut to the quick right there's yeah. this group called the DAO, right? DAO, uh, I believe DAO st stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. So it's basically like an, you know, organization as code <laughs> or code as organization. Not sure which way you would say that, but uh, in any event, basically what, what happened was this, this DAO, the DAO was effectively a investment house. Uh, but it was, as far as I can tell, not wasn't like a an organization per se it was based on the smart contract you could you could buy into it through the ethereum concept and then you basically had voting rights on on what uh the dao and dao not dow uh invested in and then you would reap the you know rewards of of whatever gains were made or i suppose also suffer the losses um, and so apparently what happened was uh, the Dow had about a, uh, about a hundred million dollars worth US dollars worth of ethereum out of uh, uh, about a billion dollars worth of market capitalization at least at the time and um, 
the the attacker apparently was a customer, signed up as a customer of the DAO, figured out that there was a weakness in the, I don't know if you would call it the protocol or the you know the 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 mechanism which uh, a cell I'm struggling for the right nomenclature right but a cell transaction would trigger and effectively found a way to um, to cause the that selling transaction to recurse and it it kept recursing basically until uh, all of the money had been transferred, all $100 million had been transferred out of the DAO into this person's uh, account. Uh, you know, we, we have no, of course, we have no idea who that person is. If you if you go back and, and read some of the, the links that Rob references here, there's a little more detail, um, such as apparently the DAO recognized that this was a potential problem and they were in the in the process of fixing it they were about to release a code code update and um but you know they apparently while they were preparing that they got rob blind and there's also some interesting detail that rob didn't mention which is that you know i guess in that recursion it didn't get down into the you know the dollars and cents so there was still some money left and apparently the the, the bad guy or girl actually went back and um kind of completely cleaned them out. I mean, went back and went after the, the, the small change like, so that they took everything. And it, it, the hypothesis is that this wasn't as much, you know, a, a major bank heist, so to speak, as it was an attempt to destroy this the DAO entity. So pretty interesting stuff. There was... um. You know, there's some interesting discussion about how Ethereum is talking about forking the um, you know the the blockchain, so to speak, so that they could actually blacklist the recipient address, so that they could in turn recoup the money that was stolen from the DAO and then give it back to the DAO. But you know that would that that's a really complicated process, and it's really against the whole concept of cryptocurrencies in the first place, which is, you know, you're, you're not supposed to do this kind of thing. It's not supposed to go like that. Um, but at the same time, I guess you're not supposed to have a hundred million dollars stolen from you either. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's the problem, but apparently the, uh, the, the, the most interesting thing I, I thought was that the attacker apparently approached the, uh, Ethereum. I don't know if it's, a group, what you know, the the controlling body, <clears throat> and offered to give them some of the proceeds. I guess it was a third of the yep. proceeds. Yep. So thirty million dollars. At least I don't know if it's still worth thirty million dollars, but uh, thirty million dollars if they uh, did not fork it. <laughs> so kind of interesting, but apparently they're the. I, as far as I can tell, they're not going to honor that, and it sounds like they are moving ahead with uh, with forking it, which kind of tells me you know that that may indicate that this is a uh, you know probably not the most well governed of currencies you know on the one hand you can say well you isn't, know isn't that the whole point well <clears throat> when i say it's not the most well governed the the whole point is that 
you sh the, the the protocol shouldn't be making special compensations for transactions for a particular party, which is what's happening here. Mm, that's fair. And yeah. and so I think that's the, you know, I, I suspect people may lose faith in it. Although if you're one of the people affected, you you probably <laughs> like the whole idea. Um, the the more interesting thing for me is, you know, the, this whole blockchain cryptocurrency, uh, you know, th thread is part of a, you know, kind of the, the building on top of the internet, looking at, you know, kind of the, the, the next layer up in the stack, so to speak. And I think we're starting to see some of the limitations in, you know, not properly thinking things through. Right. And well, and there's all this talk of using the blockchain for all sorts of business purposes in the future too. It's, you know, it's it's more secure, it's less corruptible, etc. But this shows an example of if you don't design it incredibly carefully, people will find a way. Yeah, it, absolutely, and especially, you know, in in the in the today's world, we we are very much around minimum viable product and you know kind of get things out the door fast and that a lot of times hence, hence your children well that's true yes and that that often comes at the expense of of you know really thinking through all of the implications of problems like this and that's my that's my cautionary tale is that you know as inevitably we move forward into this sort of thing, we need increasingly smart people to to really think through, uh, you know, the the implications. Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain has so far proven to be pretty robust. You know, we have certainly we hear lots of issues with with uh, wallets being cleared out and things like that, but those are not really protocol problems. Those are really more attacks on on endpoints and and on badly run Bitcoin exchanges and. That sort of stuff, uh, and and so that, in my view, and I think Rob even points out that you know that's an example of one that was thought through pretty well, and apparently Ethereum may may, may not be. The the challenge of, I don't disagree, but there's an interesting counter, to thought out by, very smart people to trust it. Isn't that kind of what gets us in trouble with things like the NSA approving, encryption ciphers and. You know, ultimately, we're trying to, for lack of a better term, democratize technology and move away from a central elitist role. And I say we, I mean the folks who who like the concept of Bitcoin and blockchain and that sort of thing. The, you know, the, the sort of anarchist vibe there. So to go back to saying, well, we don't really understand it, but we have to trust it, seems counter to that mode of thinking of what those folks are trying to achieve. It it certainly is interesting. I, I mean, I think this is the you know, my my view. Just to the extent I've been exposed to it, it's kind of like extreme democratization, right? I, I'm not entirely sure that anarchy is the right way to couch it. I think it's <clears throat> it's more uh, it, it's moving away from the whole republic concept and and more towards the you know the actual. Uh, Direct democracy, hard, hardcore, you know, libertarian democracy, you know, where where you it, it, everything is down at the lowest level, right? So, 
anyway, um, if there's more development there, we'll uh, we'll bring it up. But it's it's an interesting thing to me as as technology marches forward and we continue to you know kind of build on top of things to to watch this sort of stuff go horribly wrong. I mean, in this particular case, that's a lot of money. I mean. That's I, I I it'll be interesting to see what happens to Ethereum in the long term. I don't know, you know. I'm I'm again I'm not a uh, a cryptocurrency analyst, so I don't know if this is a existential threat to Ethereum or or not. But we'll we'll see. Well, in some ways, it's probably good to have these sorts of failures happening early in the existence of this sort of technology to hopefully learn from and make it stronger going forward. But mm-hmm. yep. So um, moving on to our next story, and this one comes from ZDNet, and the title is CVSS Scores Are Not Enough for Modern Cybersecurity Defense. This is uh, something that we've talked about in the past, and I think um, you know, M- Michael Reutemann has talked about this quite a lot, and it was danced around some in the, the controversy that swirled last year's, or I guess it's really this year's. And, and for those who don't know, who's Michael Reutemann? Uh, Michael Reutemann was... Um, He's given a number of talks. He used to work for a company called Risk.io. Now I think it's called Kenna Security. Yeah, they were yeah. renamed. And uh, they were the ones who wrote the uh, the vulnerability section of the Verizon DBIR, which uh, was met with much controversy, uh, which Indeed. has finally died down, by the way. Um, and uh, th- this is uh, something that comes up again and again and i and i really think that we just haven't fully uh, wrapped our head around the, the the problem space here and and now i think the concept one thing i want to make very clear is this is the result of a report from a vendor called nopsec who provides unsurprisingly uh you know a different angle of uh, vulnerability prioritization and remediation. So got to keep that in mind, right? right? But but having said that, I think a lot of what is discussed rings very true. You know, we as an industry generally focus very heavily and myopically on CVSS. We focus on CVSS 10s and that's, that's what we patch, but you know, they're when you actually go through and read the the actual report, they point out that you know vulnerabilities tend to be heavily skewed towards the the higher end of the the scale. They tend to be you know up up in the nine ten range, but there isn't a lot of you know, th- there's not a lot of uh, uh, correlation between what's actually being exploited and its CVSS score. And so from that perspective, we're, we're, we're probably focusing on the wrong things. And that's kind of the, the core concept here, is that we're, we're, as an industry and as an IT shop, we're focusing on patching or prioritizing those things in a way that doesn't serve us because we're, you know, the, we're not going after the things that are li- most likely to get us compromised. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. And uh, in... in- in theory, CVSS is actually the, the the score is only one of three scores that are supposed to be uh, computed together to give you the actual CVSS score. But nobody does that. So there's there's a temporal score and an environmental score that nobody really uses. They just use the base score. Uh, and and 
the concept of the other two components helps you understand what the score is in your environment. The challenge is that we want the easy button. So most of the organizations I've worked with, especially if they have any sort of oversight or governance or whatnot, they, they will have SLAs typically built around patching certain uh, vulnerabilities, and that SLA will be varied based on the criticality as governed by the CVSS. Or, for instance, PCI will say anything over a four has to be patched within a certain period. But this is a, a, a microcosm of of actually looking at the actual risk involved with that particular exploit uh, or, or vulnerability, I should say. I shouldn't say exploit, I should say vulnerability. And, and there's a lot more ways to look at this. I think it's a good starting point. It gives you something to compare against, but when your entire governance model is based on this, you're, you're losing sight of the big picture. And here's, here's the fundamental problem is that we have, most organizations have limited resources to do patches and, and a patch has its own risk inherent to patching. You've, you typically have to take a server down, you've got to interrupt business, you've got to reboot the box, potentially. Uh, all these things could cause a problem and the patch may break something in and of itself. So uh, I'm not saying not patch, but I am saying that there is a trade-off between uptime functionality, business risk, and patch risk. And, and you've got to figure out where your organization falls in those. And when we have a very uh, sort of blasé approach to saying, well, you know, it's a CVSS score of eight or above, which means it's a critical, which means it must be passed within 30 days, and that's it. That, that's a very sort of unsophisticated way of looking at this and not a very mature way of looking at this. And, you know, when I think about this, the, the challenge to what I'm about to lay out is you really need to have a mature organization to do these things well, which means you have to have good asset management, you've got to have a good understanding of your environment, you've got to have a good understanding of your applications and your data flow, all these things that are difficult to come by unless you have a really mature organization. But not all criticals in my mind are created equal. You know, I may care a lot more about a critical that's an externally facing application that's open to anonymous hits from the internet by far than I would care about that same critical on a lab box that's sitting three firewalls in. Now, I want to patch that lab box because I, I do need to think about every endpoint being hostile. But what am I more likely to get popped first if I'm prioritization? I care a lot more if there's a known exploit in the wild for that, for that particular uh, vulnerability. I care a lot more uh, on what that particular server is doing, right? Is this an endpoint or is this a, a server that runs my payroll? You know, uh, what kind of data or applications, you know? Uh, do I have any sort of mitigation tools that I can stand in front of that uh, vulnerability? I don't know. Let's say it's uh, Poodle or, or, or uh, yeah, Poodle against TLS, as an example. There are WAFs out there that can, can block that and can spot people trying to exploit that particular vulnerability and stop it cold in the stream. So now I've got a mitigation tool that stops it that buys me time to patch. And, and so to figure all this out, it, it, you really need a lot of time and smart people to sort of, or, or good systems to sort of hash this out. And by the way, the people who wrote this article happen to sell one of those pieces of software that help you figure this out, of course. Um, but having run a lot of vulnerability management programs, you, <laughs> there is definitely a challenge when you have people dictating to the, the vulnerability management folks patching rates and patching cycles when they don't truly understand anything beyond the CVSS score. And, and I don't think it's a good true measure of risk. I think it's better than most. I think it's, you got to have something, right? And, and 
the flip side of this is that we've seen even low-risk volumes be exploited to give a foothold, and then people turn around and do an escalation to a higher level, and then turn around that around, and then can, they can do more critical exploitation. And even the smallest hole can turn into something big. So I'm not saying ignore lower criticality of vulnerabilities. They need to be patched too. But I'm saying when, much like a budget, if I'm running out of money, I got to choose who gets paid and who doesn't get paid because somebody's not getting paid. So I've got to choose where I need to spend my patching cycles to get the biggest bang for the buck for lowering risk in my organization. And I think just basing it purely on the CVSS score is not a very mature way of doing it. Yeah. Sorry, I kind of went off on a rant there. No, I think that's, I think that's right. The, the point that that I think Nop is pointing out, which by the way, it's a it's an odd name for a company because Nop in the context of computer science usually means no operation, which means that you're not doing anything, and right. So that kind of means it's do nothing security to me, but whatever. Um, <laughs> sorry, Dude, don't don't point that out, man. <laughs> sorry, guys. This this is. You know, this is kind of like when Scientology got founded. If you know, you're just you're just causing all sorts of trouble pointing that out. <laughs> I know, I know. We're well, coming after you with black helicopters. We we leave a trail of pissed off vendors in our wake. So, <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's, and it's gonna get worse. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so so anyhow, I I think the 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 point is that we really have to be looking at a better way of prioritizing. You know, Michael Reutman, there's a bunch of talks that he's given on uh, other ways of, of looking at prioritization. This company has, a, you know, has their own view, which, which mixes in availability of public exploitation and inclusion in malware, um, particularly exploit kits. And also, interestingly, I thought uh, Chatter on social media, so specifically references to uh, uh, to the vulnerability on Twitter, which you I know, get that. I I think that might be a flash in the pan sort of metric. Well, it 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 is, it is, and and I think that as I as I thought about this, the the concept again rings true to me, right? That we, um, you know, we we're not doing a great job at at focusing on patching the things that make that are the highest risk but at the same time i suspect you know we're we have a bit of a hindsight bias going on here where we're you know we're uh we're trying to do some regression testing and things are lining up in ways that that you know if you were to be faced with a new vulnerability tomorrow i don't think that would make sense not the least of which problem comes from the fact that all of those factors can change on a hour to hour basis. You know, the yeah, fact absolutely. that the fact that there is no exploit, you know, public exploit right now doesn't mean that in four hours from now that's still the case. Right. And so so, you know, the, it's an imperfect science. Um and I it, I do think it's an area that we just we just have to find a better way. Right? Because as you point out, we have a fixed amount of of time and money and energy, and you know ultimately we can never patch everything. It's it, no one. I, I'm not aware of anybody who can. I do think we ought to be looking at new technology opportunities, cloud and other things, 
as an opportunity possibly to you know fundamentally change the game so that you can patch um, you know more aggressively but you know that's not for everybody right I mean that's a that's that's a transformation that that's going to take many years and in the meantime people are going to keep getting compromised so yeah if you have a great deal of budget and a great deal of time and a great deal of of energy you can build an infrastructure that's resilient to patching you can build full redundancy and seamless failover and you know full qa uh, environments and user replicated environments and you could test all this and you could but once again that is fundamentally based on having a whole bunch of resources which we rarely have and ultimately this is the balance of of companies are trying to figure out if you know if i've got extra resources do i want to spend it on making my application or my product or my service better or do i want to spend it on patching yep or general vulnerability management and i don't know you know the tough part is some of the compliance regs force it which can be a double-edged sword it, they don't have a choice but to patch if they're going to keep compliance up but at the same time it seems like a lot of IT organizations still just find patching and all that sort of stuff a distraction, a side gig, a taking away from their main goal as, a, as opposed to built into their expected life cycle of whatever it is they're doing. That's, that's, a, that's a really great point, and I, I do see that quite often, that it is not viewed as part of their their normal activity. You know, it's kind of like... A, uh, other other parts of uh, the the job, such as maybe I don't know timesheets or whatever, you know, th- right. those are those are never, you know, that, that's never like an explicit part of the job. It's just something that you have to do occasionally as as necessary, and it's not really a recognized thing in a lot of organizations. And I think that's a great that's a great point. Um, well, and I think it's getting worse. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the average net number of patches for a given host is going up. So for the same people administering the same boxes, they've got more patching to do. And, you know, it it seems like we're getting ourselves even further behind the power curve when it comes to patching. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's something that, that I'm struggling with, uh, you know, and, and figuring out a better way to handle it. And, And it seems like we're, we're, it shouldn't have to take heroic measures to keep up with patching, but it seems like it does for a lot of organizations. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's something that we just, in our security focus and our, our rose-colored security glasses, are, you know, that's our purview. And we're like, we can't understand why it's not that big a deal to the ops guys. Where ops guys are like, every time you make me patch, you break stuff. So go away. Right? It's not broken. Don't don't screw with it. <laughs> right? Yet. And Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm paying it up time, so go away. You know, I think this is one of these fundamental issues of an organization at its most senior level has to decide the risk tolerance and truly understand what that means and then drive their metrics and their policies around that. And a lot of organizations I see, it they have a, a misalignment of expectations between the security groups and the ops groups of what those risk tolerances are. So they're constantly fighting with each other because the ops group isn't built for that level of, of patching and and you know, downtime and people having to come in every weekend and patch stuff and, uh, you know, and they have little short little patch windows and downtime windows and the, the security team's like, 
what the hell? Why are you so far behind in your patching? This is unacceptable. And, you know, this seems like it's a constant source of conflict for a lot of organizations. So, so uh, I just had an idea. You, you, you're, you've heard of the Chaos Monkey. And, sure. And in fact, there's a whole Chaos Simeon army that, that Netflix has now. Mm-hmm. And you know what? What if? What if? You know there were a new uh, a new Chaos Monkey breed, which was uh, one that would turn off your server if you were missing patches older than a certain amount of time. <laughs> it's fascinating, but again, that's something you'd have to have at such a high level in your organization to buy off on that. Because think of the the, the disruption of production, which is going to disrupt. Business. Oh, I, I agree, but it's one of those things. It's you know similar similar to the the, the fundamental concept of the chaos monkey itself. Mm-hmm. It you don't you don't get you don't you don't get any reprieve right because you know right. that chaos monkey monkey cometh right. There's there's no you know whereas in in a normal company you know you may go for a very long time without ever getting compromised or at mm-hmm. least compromised that you know about. Right, and uh, one of the one of the, chaos, the the great things I love about the whole chaos monkey concept is it brings, you know, a, 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 an objective, you know, <laughs> de- definitiveness to to security problems. Yeah, like and and you, and operational resiliency. Yeah, yeah. You yep. you, it's, you don't you don't get any slack. It it is so, so very going briefly to for the folks who aren't familiar with chaos monkey. It's a concept of uh, within the basically virtual machine forest any one of them at any time can be turned off automatically and it and it actively does right i mean they, any server could be yeah. shut down without warning right and without planning so the concept is you've got to build your infrastructure resilience enough to automatically deal with that outage yeah and, and i think actually it's even pretty it's it's fairly fine grained i think it'll mm-hmm. It'll uh, fill up hard drives. It'll kill processes. It'll uh, shut down servers. It'll shut down networks. It'll shut down availability zones. Because at least at the time, I, I suspect, I, I think Netflix just announced they're moving to their own cloud, but off of off of Amazon. But I know for a while there, they were. I mean, it's it's hardcore. You know, the whole idea is that you you can't assume anything. Right. I, I think it's an awesome concept. I love being to that level of maturity, but I think more, most organizations don't have the budget. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. Yeah. I so, mean, I, it's not lack of will or knowledge. It's it's typically... <laughs> something to think about for you guys. Yeah. So moving on to our next story, and this is the best article we could find, really one of the only articles we could find. It's from CRN.com, and the title is Sofo slams silence in blog post as market for endpoint security heats up. So, um, so the the way I first found this, um, I don't know how you first saw it, but it was uh, Silence's retort, right? So Silence wrote a retort to uh, a video. Well, this was, this was sent to us by one of our wonderful listeners. Okay. Right. So that's how I found out it was. Ah, okay. They they somebody hit us up on the twitters and. Asked us if we'd seen this, and I had not yet. And it was Silence's retort. Yes. Yeah, so that's right. Okay. To our wonderful listener, who, who may or may not choose to be identified, so I will not identify them out of respect for their identity, opsec. There you go. Carry on. So, um, so anyhow, Silence is an endpoint security for those not in the know. Silence is an endpoint security vendor, a 
next generation endpoint security provider. And Sophos is, you know, an, in, an incumbent, I guess what I'll call traditional endpoint security company. And, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I haven't seen the video. I can only, uh, I've only read the, a well, bit of the back get, and forth. The video in question got yanked. Yeah. So, so, so basically, there apparently was a video made by Sophos with a, a business partner who is also apparently a business partner of Silence, and uh, and and they were doing the normal kind of bake off type thing, you know, where you know we're gonna we're gonna have uh, server A running Sophos and server B running Silence, and we're gonna throw a whole bunch of viruses at it and see which one survives. And of course, you know, the Silence one failed apparently miserably, and the Sophos one uh, didn't, but. So, uh, sorry, Silence uh, claims that the business partner or an employee of the business partner, um, I'll use the word colluded, with Sophos to uh, disable certain, and this is all alleged, right, uh, certain default yeah, let's, features. Let's be very clear on this. We don't know the truth right now. Right. But we're going to talk about this in a broader sense once we get through the story. Yeah, and, and so, so apparently uh, Silence's allegations are that uh, effectively Sophos worked with this business partner employee to, um, to, to create a bad representation of Silence's product performance by um, selectively... Uh, picking viruses, virus samples that Sophos would catch and Silence wouldn't, and then also apparently disabling features that that were important on Silence. Again, I don't know, you know, all of this stuff is is hyperbole at this point, but you know, I, I think the bigger the bigger point is a lot of this stuff is you know is is very market driven. You know, it's it's. All of these, I hate to say, right? But you know, Gartner and they're they're all a window into the the operation of the product. And in many cases, the vendor gets to um, arrange how things look on the other side of the window. I don't know how to say it any better than that. And, and so, uh, so as consumers of these products, I, we have to be really cognizant of, you know, the, the limitations of what we're seeing when we, you know, when, when we are, uh, when we're looking at these kinds of performance, um, I don't know what you want to call it, marketing material, right? Uh, <laughs> well, I was going to say propaganda, but that didn't seem like the right word. I, there's so much that you could say about this and having worked for so many different vendors in my career, I've, I've seen all sides of this. I, I worked for a vendor where we went to set up a product for a bake off against a bunch of our competitive products being written by uh, one of the major magazines at the time. And, you know, one thing that came out of that is the guy doing the bake off is he does a lot of different things. So he's clearly not an expert in our technology. So, you find that they're incredibly reliant upon what's being told to them by the vendors. And of course, they all have their own vested interest and their own view of reality. Uh, so you take that with a grain of salt. You look at things like the NCC group and Gardner and they how, how they 
run their tests. And, and, you know, there's, there's been all sorts of rumors and allegations throughout the industry for years that it, that those are not always as black and white as they seem. Uh, there, there were people who, 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 um, what, no, not NCC. Who was it? People should sort of stop sending their, their products to, to be tested. Like FireEye recently did and somebody else did. Anyway, I'm, I'm blanking on the details, but that, that some of these vendors didn't like the methodologies involved with these tests. And, and there's, there's, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's always been grumblings of Gartner as a bit of a pay to play. How much are you spending with Gartner on other uh, consulting services may contribute to your ranking in their magic quadrants. I don't know if that's true or not, I, but that's been grumbling out there. But, you know, at a bigger level, one of the one of the challenges or one of the realities of working for one of these vendors, especially a smaller vendor, and you're trying to come up with these competitive differentiators, you're, you're trying to show how you're different to get traction. And, you know, to be brutally honest, to create doubt in your potential customer about your competitor. So one of the things you're always looking for is what we would call competitive intelligence. What's what are the weaknesses of my competitor. And the problem with this is that you're out there begging for this information or trying to find this information and your marketing group is trying to provide it and it's usually crap. It's usually really bad information. It's usually incorrect and inaccurate. But most sales teams just echo it. And then if they're not careful, they're saying things that aren't true, which hurts their own credibility. Right. The other challenge with you know, competitive differentiation of competitive intelligence is it changes so incredibly rapidly. Uh, you know, next version, that might be completely wrong or different. So these, these vendors live in their own ecosphere, their own bubble, and they start to believe their own marketing and believe their own propaganda, and they think it's true. So when a video gets put together that may, in this case, allegedly had degraded the capabilities of silence to make Sovos look better... I don't know how you trust that very easily. The same thing's going on right now, by the way. Palo Alto and Checkpoint are going back and forth in this sort of thing. And all these videos keep showing up that allegedly are just independent people running these comparisons between Palo Alto and Checkpoint. But I can almost promise you that these are proxy folks for Checkpoint and Palo Alto. And I'm not going to weigh in on who's better there. But what, what I would say is that if you're looking for competitive information of how to decide on a product, you have to be very careful about what you believe. And even if it's coming from a Gardner, and Gardner, by the way, is the freaking easy button for executives. It's, yeah. it's like the old rule of you never get fired for buying IBM. You never get fired for buying the people in the magic quadrant of a Gardner. Because right. you've got air cover from your executives if something goes bad. Yeah. Look, they're up there. Upper right. 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 I bought Best of Breed. Not my fault. As opposed to, well, these guys are a startup nobody's seen before, but I want to take a chance on them. Much harder to defend. And whether that's right or wrong, that's the reality in the, in, in, you know, the C-suites. So in a situation like this, uh, you know, we, we kicked around this concept of like uh, taking the Pondon contest and then throwing, after you do the original Pondon, then throwing a bunch of defensive technologies set up as well as they can be by the vendor on the various targets and then <laughs> run all the exploits again. I think that would be a fair test. Um, but this is a tough one because a lot of time the vendors are not allowed to be involved with these tests. They're not allowed to be involved with the setup beyond a certain s state. And so 
it's tough for a vendor to know if the results are being accurately represented. And frankly, there's a whole lot of vendors out there who are more than happy to lie, cheat, and steal to cause enough doubt to give their sales guys the opportunity. To All they want is for that customer to call their sales team and let the sales team engage. Because yep. then they trust the sales team's tactics right. to get the deal done. So it's funny because when you read the Silence blog, whether they're right or wrong, what's really funny is that they say, if you really want to know the truth, do a POC of our tool. Which sounds innocuous, right? I.e., call us out and right. get our sales Seems innocuous, but and, and by the way, I absolutely recommend doing a POC. Never buy a product without testing your own environment. In fact, the, the punchline of this whole thing is you don't know how well that tool is going to work until you test it in your environment because not every environment is made equal. However, when somebody says to you, well, just do a POC. It's, you know, for free. It's not free. Because now you've engaged with the sales team whose entire job in life is to get you to buy their product and not buy the competitor. And they're very good at their job. Very good at their job. They're not there to advise you. They're not there to help you make the right decision. They're not there to tell you, you know, what, what works well, what doesn't. In rare cases, they might be honest about that. They're there to get their commission check. So as soon as you engage in that POC, that comes with a manipulative and aggressive sales team. Now, there are, of course, some exceptions to that rule, but that is typically how this works. So that being said, that's, that's the, you know, the trade-off, right? I don't know another way to do it. Uh, certainly, you could look to a VAR who may or may not be neutral and may be able to give you some of their experiences. You could ask your, your, uh, your, your friends in the industry what they've seen. Of course, if a vendor offers references, do you think they're going to offer a reference that didn't have a good experience? Come on now. <laughs> So uh, yeah, exactly. I guess what I'm saying is for both good and bad posts or references or videos or whatever, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. You know, the, uh, by the way, I think this is this points to a bigger problematic trend and we've talked a little bit about this and, and that is that a lot of the think pieces like in, in fact, the one we talked about just a couple of stories ago related to the CVSS score, it, almost every think piece, educational piece of material, whatever you want to, however you want to call it, these days, it, the, the stuff that's coming out that is timely and and whatnot is from a vendor who, who has yep. some horse in the race. And, you know, I, I don't have a better. I don't. I'm not saying that I know what the, you know, no, what, what's the it's right thing. No, because incredibly expensive and difficult to provide. Right. This sort of insight. But but the problem is that you have these people, you know, these organizations. And by the way, I, I don't think they necessarily have uh, malfeasance in a lot, in a lot of cases. You know, there are, you know, real altruistic motivation, but at the same time. You know, they're they're coming at things from their own understanding of the market, which is heavily slanted based on what they can do, and what what the capabilities of their their yeah, things they, are. Yeah, they they define the problem space as the problem they can solve, not the problem the customer has. Right. And right. you know, the, the other thing that's interesting about that is when you look at something like a Gartner, they are making assumptions about what that tool 
does for you in your organization. So they're having a one-size-fits-all approach of this is the best tool for the job. And sometimes that may work, but sometimes you may have a different focus of what you need that tool to do. That is, you know, maybe an ancillary or secondary feature set that isn't the main feature set. And if that tool is being judged on the main feature set, you don't know that that secondary feature set may be exactly what you need. Yeah, and so so I think that my, my observation is that we're getting away from, and, and this is a little concerning and also probably contentious, you know, I, I think we're really getting away from, uh, um, you know, actually having a clear handle and approach, uh, security-focused approach, and, and more of a, you know, a vendor-led I'm not saying this very well, right? But hopefully the concept's coming through. But a, a vendor-led, utilitarian approach to security. We're, we're, you know, we're we're modeling our programs based on the capabilities of tools that are available, rather than what's right, or what yeah, what, what makes the most sense. And uh, and and you know, we we're we've become kind of attention deficit, and we're always looking for the next new shiny blinky box that can solve well, the problem that we. The last one created. Part of that is the build versus buy discussion, right? And and if I'm going to buy from the industry, I somewhat have to make that trade-off of what the state of the art is. The flip side of that is when I was in sales for, for sales engineering, and we'd go to talk to customers, and they'd be like, well, that's great, but you need to have feature X, Y, and Z, or we're not going to buy. And I get it, but nobody had feature X, Y, and Z. It didn't <laughs> exist yet. Right, right. So then you say, okay, I, I understand that we don't, you know, but we've got features A through J that may be useful for you. And and are you going to not buy anything that could help you at all? And then as hopefully the products evolve, maybe we'll add feature X, Y, and Z. And sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. I guess it depends on what mattered to that particular customer. But it, it there was that sort of tension with with the industry. And And the other thing is sometimes you find a customer that has one specific need that it didn't justify the vendor to build. Yeah. And 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 it's a weird problem with this build versus buy uh, equation. Well, and, I, and in, I I guess my I guess that I was more on the point of, you know, we 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 always seem to be hitting the button of what security product can we bring in to solve our APT problem? What right. what can we do, you know, what 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 new thing can we put in our our workstations to you know to to make it so that our Swift accounts don't get <laughs> hammered or you know it rather well, than rather than taking a a different approach of saying okay how do we fundamentally I mean how do we just fundamentally architect things differently so right, that they're more right, robust okay. yeah well it's a lot easier to add a blinky box and bolt it on than try to rebuild the the business process or retrain the people or change because all these problems typically are, are a people process and technology problem, but we're constantly trying to solve it with just a technology solution or a technology control after the fact. Well, and, and a bolt on one at that. We're not, right. you know, we're, we're not even, we're rarely going back in questioning early design choices of not the security aspect or well, you know, how, the security you... technology. How are you going to justify it, right? You, you know, you walk into an organization, you figure out, wow, your your network is completely flat. Well, there's your problem with X, Y, and Z. I, I mean, how much time and effort and work does it take to re-architect an entire network infrastructure and segment it up and put firewalls in between and hire firewall admins and figure all that out? Otherwise, you know, 
Maybe you're trying to stop, I don't know, uh, lateral movement of an attacker. But you know, that... that versus, well, the, or or we could just monitor all of our logs from all of our Windows servers and look for that sort of activity I with this shiny new bo blinky box. It goes back to work is hard, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's why they call it work, you know? And... and I, 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 you're absolutely right, and that's that's why we are where we're at. However, I just, I, I, I just think, by and large, we're getting away from the fundamentals. You know, we're 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 getting away from the the smart people doing smart things, making smart decisions, and we're getting more towards the, you know, let's just slap some crap in there and hope it works. I don't disagree. So. Anyway, there was one other thing we wanted to talk about, which we don't really have any particular story to talk about, it, except there was a whole spate over the past two weeks or, or so. It seems to be accelerating. Um, I, I know in the past probably week, I've gotten four or five different emails from services I have, like Carbonite and Pandora, and I don't even know who else, I can't remember, saying that, uh, you know, my... Uh, my user ID or email address or both or whatever was found in some previous password dump and, and therefore they're resetting my ID. And, uh, you know, th this is, um, this is a real problem, right? And I, and I think it's, as we've talked about in some of the, the stories in previous weeks, like with the team viewer thing, it's, it's becoming, kind of like ransomware, you know, started off as an individual person problem and now it's morphed into a really significant problem for business. This password reuse issue is starting to show up at the front door of our of our companies. So Yeah, absolutely. And and it's fa it was fascinating to me because we're seeing sites that weren't breached at all. Not even involved with the breach, but they realize that a lot of their users are reusing passwords and reusing account names. Well, I, I, you know, I kind of wonder if, if th things like TeamViewer, I mean, assuming the, you know, what, what's been said was in fact true, you know, there were lots of TeamViewer accounts being compromised, but TeamViewer mm -hmm. itself hadn't been compromised. And allegedly this was because of password reuse where, you know, either LinkedIn or some, maybe MySpace, I don't know, some uh, some credentials that were reused on TeamViewer were, you know, were being used. And then that's splashing back on TeamViewer and TeamViewer saying, what the hell, guys? We didn't get compromised. You know, this is like, this is your, this is your, the user's problem. But it's not, you know, unfortunately, that is tarnishing their reputation and it's a big headache. And I suspect that we're going to see a continued focus on these online services, you know, really looking well, at this. I wonder if they're going to start forcing password resets over time, right? Based on, okay, you've had this password for a year, reset it. It makes sense to me. Well, but it's anti-customer. It's a pain in the butt for their customers. I think the fundamental solution is probably a password manager and unique complex passwords for each site. I don't think it's viable for individuals to remember different passwords on their own. They're going to need a password manager of some variety. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah, he's preaching to the choir. No, I, I just, I think that's the only way it's going to get done. Uh, uh, yep. You know, I, I was thinking about this a little bit and kind of from the, 
the, the, the whole nudge perspective, which I'm, I, I really like that concept, you know, nudge, if you're not familiar, that's the, uh, Richard Thaler is a, a psychologist who came up with this concept. You know, he's, he was the, the father of behavioral economics and he wrote a book called nudge and he founded this group in uh, the UK, which apparently didn't do a good job of avoiding the Brexit. Uh, but you know, it was called the nudge unit. And the whole idea was looking for um, what, what he called uh, libertarian paternalism, where, where you're trying to guide people to do what you want, but you give them ultimate control. And one of the things that I was thinking is, you know, we websites should be offering a strong password, a strong and unique password to the user, but then let them set one if they want. Yeah, I think most people would probably accept that. Uh, I don't know if they would have a rash of, do I trust it now because the website has my password as well as other folks going, man, I can't remember that, so i got to write it down or I've got to do a password reset. I mean, we live in a world that we're incredibly technical and we are incredibly aware of these issues, but a lot of folks just want to use their damn computer and go to their websites. And so... Uh, yep, you're right. You know, it's it's probably going to end up one of those things ultimately that either we're going to do something other than passwords... Or I don't I don't know I. Unfortunately, you know we we have we have great alternatives. I mean, to, multi-factor authentication is a well-worn thing. You know, it's it, it is it's relatively easy to do, but mm-hmm. but you know it has it's you know a it's not perfect um, and and b it's less convenient. But then again, so is a password manager. So yeah. But, you know, a well-run password manager is actually quite nice and quite convenient. Oh, I agree. I agree. I I, I do enjoy uh, the convenience of mine, so, yes. And, you know, I, I can't imagine operating without it at this point. But I will tell you, and I ran a, I ran a survey um, recently on, on Twitter. Was, was it a scientific survey? Uh, totally unscientific, in fact. <laughs> and... Um, but one thing I've, I one thing I have noticed is that, and uh, I suppose most of us in security have observed this. You know, security is a subset of a broader field of IT, and the thing about IT people is they are expert across the entire domain, right? The average IT person is an expert at programming, at security, at you know, system administration, help desk absolutely everything they they know it all or at least they think they do <laughs> and uh yeah. and, and so so what i've what i have observed is that there is a great amount of variance in uh the the, the beliefs around what the right way to manage your passwords is yeah right there are a lot of it people i have run into and then backed over, and then run into again. Um, <laughs> who, who believe that? Man, has... now all of our listeners are going to have to testify at the trial. Yeah, Good I know. Job. <laughs> uh, <sighs> that uh, that password managers are are just terrible, and that people need to come up with just a, a you know really strong password no, that I, they can I, remember. I understand their point, and you know all respectfully, they're fucking wrong. I mean, yeah, people can be wrong, and yep. that's just the way it is. 
So, <laughs> by the way, we picked up a new sponsor. It's a password now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I. By the way, I still think multi-factor is is the best way to go. Um, however, it, it's it is. Uh, but this goes back to a risk-based analysis. Do you need yep. multi-factor for logging into your Wired.com account? Well, and it's it, you know there is no standard, right? Passwords again are the least common denominator. You you know I, I can take my password manager, which is installed on my iPad, my phone, my computer, everything, and it will log me into whatever, right? And mm-hmm. and I I can't I don't there is no there is no such standard in, for two factor. I mean there you know some right. of some of them are going to send me in a text message, some I have to log into freaking Facebook to get a activation code and other you know there's there's no standard you know what we need i think if the department of homeland security started managing our passwords for us Ooh. as a centralized role of government <laughs> i think that would solve the problem yeah. we just lost a bunch of listeners <laughs> yeah what we need is the county password inspector see <laughs> see ra- rather than rather than keeping it a, at a federal level which is just unconscionable you know we need to respect the 10th amendment and keep mm-hmm. this down at the at the, the state level you you're absolutely correct why yes absolutely county level is probably good state level city yeah. level yeah yeah that's right why didn't i not think of that <laughs> we need, you know you know you know what we could do we could we could spin up something kind of like Dual role as the, the the county dog catcher and password wrangler. Hey, they probably have downtime, right? While they're while they're driving around looking for for stray dogs. Clearly, the government can solve this problem for us. No one else is, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, that is the show. Uh, mercifully, we're going to end it here because it's. Not going to get better, people. No, it's getting pretty deep in here. So uh, anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you for sticking through 164 episodes. Thank you to to everyone who has donated to our Patreon campaign. Appreciate that. Uh, I am still working through the backlog of email, and you should hear back from me soon. So uh, you can find links to the stories we talked about tonight on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. Um, if you like the show, give us uh, some love on iTunes. If you don't like the show, don't, you know, just move on to the next podcast. And we're sorry we failed you. Yeah. And uh, with that, oh, actually, uh, I should say also uh, you can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter uh, at Lurg and me on Twitter at Malicious Link. The show on Twitter at Defense Sec. And then we will talk next week. Thank you. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah.